Our guest today is Felice Dunas. She began her studies in 1970 before acupuncture colleges or a profession in the United States existed outside Asian communities, then devoted 25 years to building the profession in the United States through legislation, curriculum, and college development. The AAAOM recognized Dr. Dunas as acupuncturist of the year in 2001 for introducing the subject, the ancient subject of sexuality as medicine to the American acupuncture profession and for introducing classical Chinese medicine to thousands of corporate CEOs. Dr. Dunas has appeared on many television and radio shows, lectured globally, and serves as a consultant to corporations and hospitals on lowering healthcare costs with acupuncture and integrative medicine. She is the author of Passion Play, Ancient Secrets for a Lifetime of Health and Happiness Through Sensational Sex, and has been featured on numerous television shows, both within the U.S. and abroad, and contributed to many U.S. publications, including Prevention, Glamour, and Marie Claire, Cosmopolitan, and Acupuncture Today, among many, many others. So Felice, it's so wonderful to have you here uh, joining us at Pacific Center's podcast. We're really excited to have you. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So Felice, you've been practicing Chinese medicine for a long time. And as your bio suggests, since it was even a profession in the United States, how did you get into Chinese medicine? Well, the story is that when I was 14 years old, I bumped into a little Japanese priest at a bus stop on Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills, where I grew up. And I was on my way to a ballet class because I was a little ballet dancer back then. And I was practicing my little walk at the bus stop because I was so enthusiastic. Uh-huh. And I bumped right into this, this short little person wearing a brown dress and he had long hair. And I had never seen anyone who looked or dressed anything like him. And he said, well, that's okay, because I've been coming here every day for three weeks waiting for you. Oh, wow. And I thought, did I like smoke pot at recess today or something? (laughs) Like, like, what's this about? Like, okay. And he, he sat me down on the butt on the bench at the bus stop. And he opened one of those wonderful Japanese like art medicine books Mm. and like there we were with you know the how they have these beautiful books that are wider than they are tall Mm -hmm. so between our two laps he opens this beautiful book and starts showing me pictures of meridians with this beautiful art and that was he was my first teacher he stayed with me for a year and a half while I was a freshman and sophomore at high school and when I was 15 and a half he told me he was going back to Japan, that he had done what he was supposed to do, and that my next teacher would be coming within six months. And, you know, I thought the whole thing was so crazy, like, <laughs> whatever, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and five minutes, five months later, I met my second teacher, and later a third, and then here we go. And it's been a long time since then. That's amazing. Do you remember his name, the, the old Japanese master? He never master? would tell me his name. Oh. He, I called him Sensei. Mm. And he, he said that when he left, it was over. 
like my relationship with him with him was over i should not come looking for him like it was done he had played his role in my life mm. which was then to play a role in a much larger sphere with the mm. medicine mm -hmm. and that it was done and not to follow it so i never even knew his name <laughs> that's amazing did he ever do acupuncture on you he did absolutely and moxa some really beautiful forms of moxa that um he did one form with a moxa box that felt so mm. incredible i just said i'm gonna have to do this for the rest of my life that's how good this feels yeah. and i have <laughs> since then that's it was amazing. a pretty miraculous kind of crazy story but you know it, teenagers will go with just about anything and i did yeah that's incredible that's a wonderful story um was you, how was your was your second teacher that mysterious or was it a little bit more korean mainstream korean okay. technique okay. um much more dogmatic much more uh, theoretical i didn't really get to use needles until mm -hmm. my third teacher mm -hmm. i did a little with my second but my first teacher was all about my finding the value in points mm. and really coming to understand the power of a point. Mm. And he wouldn't let me use needles at all. And that's very typical, really, in apprenticeship that you spend a lot of years proving yourself worthy of whatever the next step in the medicine is. Yeah. So I remember my third teacher, Naburo Muramoto, he, he wrote um, the book Healing Ourselves, I think it uh -huh. was, back mm -hmm. in the 70s. So I studied with him in San Francisco and he used to throw packets of needles. He'd like throw packets of needles at us while we would sit on the floor in a circle. There'd be like five or six of us. Huh. And he, he would say that we could put them in our arms or our legs anywhere, but nowhere near the trunk of the body. And I was so excited because I'd been studying for years already and nobody let me get near a needle. So this was like, stick them anywhere. And I'm like, wow i'm just oh wow this is so fun <laughs> it's just all over it <laughs> i mean anywhere points not points i just went for it <laughs> i remember the, the first time i stuck a needle on myself my hand was trembling i was so afraid to to puncture myself 30 years ago that's incredible i, lo I love that story i remember he said to me what's important isn't the point what's important is the channel so he trained us when we put needles in to not allow the physical body to be an impediment mm. to the flow of chi and the head of the needle mm. like we we the idea was to not even feel the musculature to, to allow the needle to just go where it needs to go which was to the river of chi mm -hmm. and and it was beautiful to like I actually had the experience of a needle going right to that flow without my noticing the skin or the musculature. And it was it was really beautiful and very exciting. Mm. So it's that it sounds very, very profound. Well, I wanted to I wanted to move us into a, uh, a topic that I think is everyone's favorite, certainly one of one of our favorite sex, you've written extensively and and worked uh, extensively in this domain. Uh, but I want to start out with a quote from, from your book, from Walt Whitman. This, he says, sex contains all, bodies, souls, meanings, proofs, purities, delicacies, results, promulgations, songs, commands, health, pride, 
the maternal mystery, the seminal milk, all hopes, benefactions, bestowals, all the passions, loves, beauties, delights of the earth. I love that. I love that quote. And I love that you started uh, your book uh, with that quote. And I love this book, by the way. I, I, I'm going to have you autograph it for me next time I see you in person. I've had it, I think, since 1990 when I first started. And um, it's an incredible book for all of our listeners who don't have passion play. Um, get it. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Um, it will help your, your practice immensely in your patients. I think Red Wing carries it as well. And Red Wing. Yeah, thank you. Go to Red Wing first if they don't let's have it. Let's support Red Wing. Let's yeah. support Red Wing. Yeah. Um, why did you pick that quote, by the way? How did, do you remember? Well, <clears throat> my experience is that not only from a clinician's perspective, but also from a personal perspective, we have this truly wondrous energetic dynamic in life and that is gender and sexuality and it is so powerful so so deeply foundational that we're terrified of it and we are uncomfortable talking about it we're uncomfortable approaching it we um we use it to sell everything other than itself. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can buy clothes and vodka and makeup and cars and all kinds of things that are sold with sex, mm -hmm. in a sense, with sexiness. Mm -hmm. But the act of loving itself is really undervalued. It's underutilized by couples who are striving to maintain closeness and connection. It's underappreciated by people who are single, who sort of forget that they have the, magnific the magnificence of their sexuality with them, whether they're having sex with someone or not. And I wanted to open the book with the understanding that the sexual dynamic of life is absolutely tremendous. And that was understood by our professional ancestors as well. Like there's a correlation there. Mm -hmm. the among the very first teachings in our field were those on understanding human sexuality and how to harness it for healing purposes so that kind of combined the east and the west concepts for me mm -hmm. can you give us a bit of history on the on the chinese sexual practices you mentioned our our ancestors in this medicine and you know i i know that that the first sexual texts were found in the Muangdui, Muang, I'm butchering that name, Muangdui Han tomb, all the way back uh, uh, in the Hunan province in 168 BC, right? There were some medical texts uh, that were discovered during that time, along with the Huangdi Neijing, and they were focusing on this, these types of practices. And what were some of the theories that, that they were focused on? Um, these texts. So if you think about it, before you had an external implement, like a needle, mm -hmm. whether it was made of bone or bronze or stone, you know, before you had something outside of the body that you would then use to stimulate the flow of energy in the body, 
you have the body itself. Like even more primitive is the fact that you can use the human body to stimulate itself and or to stimulate the body of another. And so the understanding that sexuality could be used to cultivate chi and to distribute chi is really foundational. And in a sense, we're just using either another human being or we're using solo sexual practices to invigorate and cultivate and then distribute chi. So those are some of the very foundational understandings that kind of correlate with the historical evolution of sexuality as part of Chinese medicine. We know there were 20-ish really substantial books that were written in the 1100 years between 200 BC and maybe 900 AD, the, the Han and Tang dynasty. So were we, we want to sort of take much of what was cultivated there so that we can utilize it in our in our everyday lives now. You know, I, I think um, what's really most important about the historical information for those of us who are in clinical practice isn't the academic perspective on it, but it's how can we help our patients today? You know, what can we impart today that is relevant for our patients? and that will actually help them uh, get better results with their patients. So the history is, is among the oldest in our field, but what's magnificent about it is that we can make it very relevant for patients today. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like, it, it sounds like you know, the, the sexual uh, work that was being documented during that time was really in a way and you're, the way you're describing is really a, a, another form of Qigong or forms of Qigong, right? Yes. Is it, that fair to fair to? Yes, the, and, and breath is involved, but there are also, but there's also movement involved. Mm -hmm. and, and so there are many similarities. <clears throat> um, the idea is that the friction of touch you know, the, the, the physical connection of touch mm -hmm. generates heat, mm -hmm. you know, and that heat can then be transformed into the forms of energy that our bodies utilize, because we mm -hmm. don't utilize heat as, as the source of our vitality. We use electricity and we use chemistry. And, and that's essentially when we're measuring chi, that's what we're measuring when we're looking at bodily changes as a result of the work that we've done in clinical research that's what we're looking at so and that's how the nervous system communicates with the entire body through electric electricity and magnetism and chemistry mm -hmm. so the body uses the physical touch and transforms the heat that is generated by that touch into electrical and chemical energy. And that energy can then be manipulated. It can be stored in the body for future use. Back to the concept of longevity, because longevity was a very important concept among the ancients. Mm -hmm. um, it, it could be used to heal an illness or an injury at that very time. 
So energy was generated by the friction of physical touch. It was transformed into what we would consider chi. And then it was utilized in whatever way the physician wanted the patient to utilize it at the time. Interesting. We, we've been, um, I think we've been wandering far away from that, uh, that just energetic exchange perspective in our, in our culture. Um, and I think that, and we're going to talk, I'm going to ask you about this in a little bit about, you know, why we're so hung up on it and the good and bad attached to, to sex. Before I do that, though, I want to, I want to quote another quote of, from your book, from the beginning of uh, chapter five, from a Dallas master that says, in part, um, of all the things that make mankind prosper, none can be compared to sexual intercourse. It is modeled after heaven and takes its form by earth. So given the grandiosity of that and the sublimity of that statement, what in your perspective is the big hang up about sex in our culture? I think essentially how very powerful it is. If you think about the most powerful forces in the world, you think about money, uh, you think about um, sexuality, you think about innovative or disruptive thinkers who, who bring new ideas you know, into a, into a culture, mm -hmm. they all run into a tremendous amount of trouble. <laughs> we love and hate our disruptive thinkers. We love and hate the wealthy and the poor. And we love and hate the highly sexual and the asexual, right? And it's just the essential power of that aspect of human beingness. And yet I think it's this aspect that our professional ancestors felt was so powerful that it could be utilized as a form of medicine in, in very specific ways. Now, there's nothing sensational about these techniques. Mm -hmm. um, there's, it, it's not a game, it's not a toy, though they did use fun and they did create sexual games, but everything that has been created historically in, in Chinese medicine, even beyond the boundaries of the country of China, involved kind of all aspects of self, mm -hmm. you know, bringing in the weakness, bringing in the strength, bringing in humor, bringing in solemnity, bringing in love and affection, bringing in sort of the cool academic clinical approach, like all of this was, was part of these and, and is still part of these practices. You talked about, you mentioned it's a power and, and we, we, we choose to like or dislike uh, somebody or something based upon power and this, you know, the sexual uh, prowess or sexual, um, uh, a high level of sex was really um, something that was very powerful back uh, in, you know, ancient, chi ancient times in China with the emperor. And we talked a little bit about this earlier before the podcast. And um, it was really used as a, as a tool for transformation. But I was thinking of it more like a currency, like kind of what you're talking about. And so it wasn't really available necessarily to, to the general public. Uh, can you talk a little bit about more how, the, um, how it was being used by the emperor and, and by 
um, by physicians and, and how that can, we can kind of bring that forward a bit. Well, just as it's, a, it's very speci special for someone to be able to come get treated with Chinese medicine now, and not everyone can afford to get treated. Yes. It, we can take that back thousands of years and say, this modality was the rarefied modality. This was the diamond in a sense of the medicine because these techniques, if you learn them well and you utilize them, they would give you the cutting edge over your competitors. You were the one to win on the battlefield. You were the one whose children would be the most powerful. You were the one who was really destined for elevated leadership, for spiritual revelation, for um, scholarly brilliance. Mm. Like these techniques were only taught to those in the royal and noble families to, for whom great leadership capacity was anticipated by their natures. So in essence, physicians would look at the Jing of the individual. You know, mm -hmm. they would look at who someone was and mm -hmm. say, is this person worthy of being taught the erotic healing arts practices. And if they were, it was with the intention that they would do great things with them, that they would contribute to society with them, that they would be the leader of the military with them. And it wasn't um, distributed lightly. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> it's true, these were not even available to all noble children, all noble families, all, no, no only those rarefied individuals who it was thought could truly utilize these practices because you can also do great harm with them. Right. You do great harm with them as well. Anything that's powerful, you can do great harm with. In fact, you know, if we look at the spectrum of how much fear we have and how much we focus on negativity in reference to sexuality, rape and incest and you know, uh, all the pain that many of us feel from poor sexual expression. Mm -hmm. Well, ideally, we would be able to say that much on the positive side as well, mm -hmm. because that much light and blessing and divine grace and, and intuition cultivation and uh, intimate connection can be cultivated at the same time. So while it's true that sexuality has a dark side, it's also true that it has a light side. There is the yin aspect, there is the yang aspect, and they are both equally relevant. We focus as a culture generally, unfortunately, on the darker side, you know, right. and we don't take advantage of the light. Well, our professional ancestors in their writings and in their teachings, you know, and they focused on the incredible potential and power that properly conducted sexual living can produce for someone and for the nation as a whole. I mean, that's the amazing thing, that if someone learns these practices, the sexual Qigong practices, and practices them you know, with a beloved, for example, the power will end up benefiting the community as a whole, not mm -hmm. just themselves. Yeah, yeah. So it would lead to more well-balanced individuals, which thereby would affect the local community and the local community. It's like a Confucian, you know, do good in the home and then do good in society, right? Right. So going, I want to get into the techniques a little bit in, in a second, but first I, I want to just reflect back 
on, you know, what you said a little bit about um, it being kind of uh, uncomfortable, if you will, or um, we're just not comfortable in it. And so I'm thinking about like sex education in America. And I remember going through sex education in whatever junior high school, and it was ridiculous. Everybody sat in an auditorium and looked at pictures of penises and vaginas and giggled and poked each other and really didn't learn anything. Um, and it, it's so sex education is really ridiculous most of the time in America or completely absent. I think I read something recently that there's sex education is only in about 50% of states in America. And I don't know if that's, that figure is completely accurate, but it's completely missing in, in other parts of the country. What, what can we do if anything about, about this? Is it just us treating our patients one-on-one and making individual change with, with those individuals and their families? Or what, what do you think about that? Well, teaching about sexuality is really like throwing a pebble into the water. Mm-hmm. You know, there are beautiful reverberations, there are lovely ripples that, that can spread out. If in the context of a medical practice, a clinician feels comfortable addressing issues of human sexuality with the patient, mm-hmm. um, sort of allowing sex and sexuality to be integrated into the conversation, just like anything else would be integrated into the conversation, mm-hmm. that can actually be very healing, just that alone. And my, my experience has been that when a clinician approaches this subject and looks at it symptomatically as he or she would look at any set of symptoms and integrates that understanding and shares it with the patient, that's really eye-opening for someone. Like, I'll give you a very simplistic example. Um, I've had many, many male patients with prostate related problems. And this is actually an epidemic in the United States. It's a tragic epidemic that's not being discussed enough. And that's Mm -hmm. been the case for many, many years. Well, when I speak with these men about their sex lives with their wives, for example, you know, they'll say, well, you know, 30% of the time I make love to my wife and 70% of the time I'm just screwing her. Mm. Like she's not really showing up. Uh And, and my response to that is, well, as a woman isn't present, if she's not truly receiving her partner, Mm -hmm. well, he's very likely to start developing cheek congestion. Yes. And that congestion, if you look at the anatomy, you know, you've got the end of the penis and erection on the far end of that, you've got the prostate. Mm-hmm. And as she begins to congest because it's not flowing smoothly, a partner isn't lovingly and welcomingly receiving it, yeah. that will congest. And ultimately, what do we know about chi? That when it condenses, it becomes matter. Mm-hmm. And matter it, um, expands. And then we have a gland that is expanding. And when there's an expansion and heat develops because there's in a sense constriction going on, there's too much chi in one place, 
then you lose organizational capacity. And when she loses organizational capacity, what do you get? You get lumps and bumps and tumors and, and cells that are growing in a disorganized way, which ultimately can become cancerous. So this is just one of many examples where, you know, if, if a couple understands or even just a patient understands that there's something very important going on in the way you make love mm -hmm. that will affect your health. I, I think that's very important. And, and as we all begin communicating messages about the importance of patient sexuality and how we as patients conduct sexuality, mm -hmm. I, I think that can be very meaningful. Agreed, 100%. So I'm glad you segued into the anatomy because I really, I think this is an area that is, um, it's, I, I don't know, I know a lot of practitioners and I don't know many that really understand the, the anatomy in the way you present it in your book. And so you alluded to the, the, the tip of the penis as being relative to the, the prostate. Um, but can you describe the, the female and the male anatomy? And I mean, now, now granted, I want to get into this as well. Not all sexual partners are, are, you know, male and female. We have, you know, heterosexual and, and, you know, homosexual and all kinds of different yin-yang relationships. So I want you to talk about that too, because that, those were mentioned in the ancient texts as well, not just male-female relations, but um, multiple transsexual relationships, uh, you know, homosexual relationships, etc. So, but first let's, let's touch on the anatomy. I think it's a unique um, understanding that we have in Chinese medicine. And so share that with you, if you wouldn't mind. Well, there's several basic theoretical constructs that we use to understand how qi is generated and moved. Uh, through the sexual act. And uh, one of them is the understanding that by stimulating very specific parts of the genital anatomy, you're stimulating a correlating internal organ. Mm -hmm. So for example, the kidneys are represented at the base third of the shaft of the penis. Meaning if you stimulate the base third of the shaft of the penis, you'll be stimulating the kidney organ. <clears throat> Such would also be the case for the vulva on a woman that, and the first third, meaning the most superficial third of the vaginal canal. So there's a correlation there between the base third of the penis and the opening and the vulva of, of the woman's genitals, the vagina and the vulva. So, so we would then go on and say that at the center of the shaft of the penis and at the center of the, the chamber of the vagina, we have the, the spleen and the digestive capacity, the capacity to absorb information, to absorb foodstuffs, to take that which is in the outside world and to bring it into us and to transform it so we can utilize it. That's the middle burner, right? And, and that is represented in the middle third of the vaginal canal and the middle third of the shaft of the penis. And then on the distal third of the penis and the most internal third of the vaginal canal, including the cervix, you have the heart and the lungs, which is the upper burner. So in a sense, 
the ancients would say that by stimulating a part of the genitals in both women and men, you're stimulating the correlating internal organ. And um, that's one of the means by which very specific symptoms were addressed. Like physicians would prescribe, I want you to utilize this intercourse position and I want, to use, I want you to use this intercourse thrusting pattern. I want you to stimulate this part of your genitals in this pattern. And in this way, we're gonna treat this disease. I mean, it was very, very specific. And then in reference to gender preference, you know, anatomy is anatomy, like we have these bodies and what we yeah. care to do with them, what our natural inclinations are, are different than the anatomy itself. So the theories that I just shared with you, that that has nothing to do with gender preference. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone is born with a penis, if someone is born with a vagina, then that's what you've got. Now, we do know that a lot of people are born um, with genitals that may be confusing to physicians. You know, either the head of the clitoris is very large or the shaft of the penis is very short, or there can be some confusion around that, but mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter because we're still dealing with anatomy and it, and it holds true that we're dealing with the lower middle and upper burners. And right. um, in terms of, uh, of the choice to be heterosexual or homosexual or transsexual, however one expresses sexuality, that has much more to do with yin-yang theory. Mm -hmm. Because if we look at yin-yang theory as representing all of society, all of human life, mm -hmm. then we would say the yang side would represent men. Mm -hmm because men are primarily testosterone based and secondarily estrogen based because men, you know, the yang side of the yin yang symbol has the little black dot and that little black dot representing yin and the primary yin sex hormones are estrogen. So, you know, the white side of the yin yang symbol representing masculinity, the left side representing femininity, primarily estrogen based with the darkness and secondarily testosterone based with the light. So it, it, that society as a whole, but another way we can look at that is to say that most men are masculine in their orientation, young in their orientation, but secondarily there is a substantial group of men who are yin or more feminine in their orientation. And so it would be within natural understanding for both genders that primarily heterosexuality is a part of human behavior, but secondarily other aspects where men are attracted to men and women to women. And, and there's this flow that goes on. That's all incorporated into yin-yang theory, which is, you know, we know that theory to be over 5,200 years old. That's one of the oldest cosmologies in all of human thinking. So, you know, that goes back a very long way. So there is not the same there aren't biases about what is or isn't okay. There are different understandings about what is the most effective way to transfer energy from one person to another, but there isn't the same kind of judgment that we have in our society today about human sexuality and how it's expressed. Yeah. You mentioned um, the techniques and there, there's far too many techniques uh, to talk about 
here, um, but maybe describe a little bit about some of the techniques uh, that that have been uh, brought forward, if you will, or, or in our in our um, in our history in Chinese medicine, and 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 also, you know, obviously the positions go into uh, relativity to the techniques, right? I mean, for generating yin yang, for stimulating certain parts of the anatomy, the positions are very important. I think there's over thirty. Don't quote me on that. You would know better than I. But is is that correct? There's a, over thirty positions that were yes. illustrated. Well over thirty positions. <laughs> well over thirty. Okay, thank you. Well, apparently I need education. So I think um, if you could talk a bit about the um, the techniques that were used. You mentioned some stimulating particular aspects of the anatomy, breathing, um, rate, depth, etc., foreplay. These are all important things. I mean, I think most people in our culture know one or two positions. And it's just kind of in and out, in and out, in and out until I'm done. And then it's like five minutes later and let's smoke a cigarette. But so what is it? What is it in our history? What is the richness? Can you describe that for us? By the way, I just want to mention, you mentioned that smoking a cigarette thing. It's really uh -huh. interesting. So why would people crave a cigarette after sex? It Wouldn't it be because the mother organ to the kidneys is the one. needs yang chi to come mm -hmm. in to transfer to the child organ because the way people have sex is depleting to them, mm -hmm. right? So if you deplete the kidney, then by the way you're being sexual, then the kidney is gonna need juice and the lungs, the mother organ on, on the Shen cycle mm -hmm. are gonna supply the juice by taking in external heat from the cigarette, so. Yeah, unfortunately, it's taking in tar and nicotine too and let's, I was never one, never one for cigarettes, but. Well, the masa would be better, but just the fact that's even like a catch-all phrase in our culture, right? You right. know, it's it's pretty interesting, and it is true. People will crave a cigarette if someone does or has ever smoked. That's when they would crave it, and moxa would be a better option. Maybe a cup of hot ginger tea. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So um, techniques and positions. So first. Positions are based on the size of the genitals and bigger isn't necessarily better, but whereas we might think of bigger as being better, especially with men, you know, the larger the penis. Now that has to do with physical anthropology. We don't need to go there right now, but mm -hmm. what does matter for the moment is that couples need to fit together. Yeah. And in fact, part of uh, face reading that was done on toddlers uh, to predict and, and determine who they should marry uh, was in part based on the size of the genitals and reading the size of the genitals on the face because you don't want to put a couple together if they don't fit one another. So in part, positions are based upon size. And different sizes of women's vagina will go with certain sizes of the male penis. Mm -hmm. And you, you bring couples together who fit one another. Right. If he is too long or he is too wide or she is too narrow or she is not broad enough, now you have a lot of trouble connecting. 
Mm-hmm. So a position can be inclusive of that understanding, and, and that's important. And there are names for all the different sizes of the genitals in both men and women, and there are names for every sun in depth mm-hmm. of the genitals or in length of the genitals. So measurements are really very important. And positions are chosen based upon what you're trying to accomplish. So the missionary position is one that we're very familiar with, for example, with the man on top facing the earth and the woman on the bottom facing the heavens. And that was called the position of a thousand diseases, because Mm. that is a position that allows a man to thrust at any depth and any angle, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of pressing up or down or to the side, sort of thrashing in the waves, so to speak, Mm -hmm. so that he could stimulate any part of his or her genitals that Mm -hmm. he wanted. And then that stimulation would be used to cure any of the thousand diseases. So even though I'm only elaborating on that one, Mm -hmm. I I want you to, to, to get, Greg, that we're really talking about the use of this intercourse position to heal like multiple diseases. Mm -hmm. And for example, uh, a woman sitting on top of her beloved, sort of facing his feet somewhat at an angle, Mm -hmm. was traditionally used uh, for PMS related symptoms, because this put a woman uh, in charge, so to speak, of the depth and angle of thrusting. And she would use the head of his penis and use that to stimulate the, the central part of her vaginal canal where her liver was located Mm -hmm. and you know that would allow her to start stimulating the liver and hormone secretion etc etc through the stimulation of the central part of the shaft of of the vagina Mm -hmm. and you then have a woman correcting some of her menstrual problems by utilizing his anatomy in alignment with hers so there's there were these were medical prescriptions. These weren't, um, they weren't haphazard. Everything yeah. was um, very firmly prescribed in terms of um, not only the cultivation of pleasure because the, now this is very interesting. The tantric system wasn't about sexual pleasure whereas mm-hmm. the Taoist system is. Mm-hmm. Like we use sexual pleasure as a tool to get the results that we want. Mm-hmm. And the results that we want are a connection between the couples and a deep experience of love from mm-hmm. the sort of um, spiritual perspective, a deep experience of love from the emotional perspective, and the cultivation of physical well-being and or physical healing based on, you know, why the sexual act is being um, conducted. So we're looking for very different things than the tantric system is, even though they've kind of been at least in the West, they're kind of linked together, but they're really very different. Interesting. What are your thoughts on, um, and that was fascinating by the way, and I think that that warrants a complete you know, workshop and maybe that's an area that would be useful for, um, uh, it would be useful for our, our uh, clinician community for sure to be um, dive down into that subject and really get elaborate with it. What are your thoughts on, I know there's a kind of a large polyamorous community worldwide. Um, what are your thoughts? I mean, again, no, no judgment here, good or bad, but what are your thoughts about multiple partners or, or primary partnership or monogamous partnerships? 
what what are your thoughts on that have you had clients from in those different camps different schools of thought so what we're really looking at is how are the internal organs affected by human behavior you know, like from our perspective as clinicians wanting to ensure that our patients are healthy, our goal is to support them in using their sexuality, as well as using every other aspect of their own behavior to really enhance and support their health. Mm -hmm. um, who you have sex with is important. Um, whether they are able to share energy, whether there's contribution, mutual contribution that happens during sex is very important. Mm -hmm. I think many of our viewers right now can relate to the idea that when I make love, I feel like I'm giving. Mm -hmm. When I make love, I feel like um, I don't want to be taking or I am taking, or I'm nervous about taking, or all I want to focus on is taking, mm -hmm. you know? Um, I mean, which way is the energy going? Or is it going in a two-directional flow? Mm -hmm. Like That's really the most important thing for us. So if someone chooses to have one partner or many partners, the, the question is, what is happening with yeah. the energy? between the two people, are they able to utilize it to cultivate greater strength? Or is one the winner? You know, it, historically, there have been all kinds of games that were created um, as to who would win, who would mm -hmm. win the sexual encounter. Mm -hmm. um, in the 16th century, there was a, a game called pluck and nurture. And basically, whoever had the first orgasm lost because the energy from that orgasm could then be absorbed by the partner, right? Mm -hmm. So if the woman had the orgasm first, then her male partner was getting all of that chi and could use that chi to cultivate his strength. And there's nothing malicious in any of this. It's just, you know, yeah. part of the evolution of the arts um, in the sexual realm. So anyway, I'm, I'm less concerned with how many partners i'm more mm -hmm. concerned with the quality of the energy but mm -hmm. one thing i will say about um, a multiplicity of partners is that there's definitely a penetration that mm -hmm. happens between the the kidney and the heart on the co-cycle there's a mm -hmm. penetration of chi that comes through the act of sex and who we have sex with is very important because we're allowing them into a very deep part of our internal energetics we're allowing them very deep into our emotional well-being and we need to be very careful. We need to set boundaries because the heart kidney connection is um, it's a very sacred one our, our, you know, when the kidneys are stimulated and that stimulation goes to controlling the heart, what you're really saying is that sexuality and this innate animal instinct is being used to stimulate and in some respects control the king of the body, the ruler of the body, the heart organ, the sense of identity, the sense of self, who am I? How do I perceive the world? So that's about as deep as you get. Yeah. And so who we choose to be sexual with is really important. And when we're treating our patients, you know, are our patients being careful? 
Mm -hmm. are, are they setting the appropriate boundaries or mm -hmm. are they letting the wrong people into these very deep internal organ connections, thereby losing their sense of their identity, losing their strength, lo losing their power and ultimately um, lessening your results with them as a, as a clinician and practitioner. Yeah. Yeah. It goes back to education in my mind. I mean, are we, are we educating our children and our families? Schools are not doing it. And most, families are probably un really uncomfortable having these conversations. Yes, they are uncomfortable. And it's, and it's for us, one at a time, if we work one-on-one, -on -one, to begin approaching the sacredness of this. Mm. And I suggest that this be part of the intake questionnaire. Mm -hmm. You know, that very simple conversation can come from three, four, five questions, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how satisfying is your sex life, for mm -hmm. example? Mm -hmm. You know, do you have any symptoms around your sex life? Pain on intercourse or pain following intercourse, pain with ejaculation, discomfort, you know, like these are very legitimate medical questions yeah. that can translate into a, a very worthwhile conversation. Yeah, and going back to, you know, prescribing uh, sexual practice. I, I, we've talked about this earlier on. I don't feel confident that majority of our practitioners that are out there across the country or maybe even worldwide are, are really um, uh, knowledgeable in, in being able to do that. And I believe that that is a missing piece. I think we have a lot of missing pieces in our profession, like you know, nutrition's done kind of poorly, I think, across our profession. Pediatrics, there's a handful of people that do it really well just because of exposure. And this is an area where I believe we really need more mastery as clinicians to be able to effectively uh, help our patients in this way. Um, yeah, I, I would tend to agree that this is so core who we are in our gender, who we are in our identity, who we are in the way that we love is so core to who we are. And that if we aren't utilizing this well, it's, it's very difficult for a clinician to get the kind of results that are actually possible from utilizing the full spectrum of modalities in Chinese medicine, mm -hmm. if there isn't a broader understanding as to how your patient's sex life can ruin your work, mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah, yeah. Right, or, you can give them all the herbs, all the herbs right. and acupuncture you want. But because then, you, then you're just compensating for the fact that people aren't making love in a way that is um, bringing their energy together and mm -hmm. consolidating it into a beautiful river and creating a flow. And you know, or or are they being shattered? You know, mm -hmm. or is energy being congested because? You know, as, as the gentleman I referred to, you know, he's screwing his wife 70% of the time and his prostate yeah. is this big. And mm. now we've got that problem to deal with, you know, and, and, and I'm not saying that solely, you know, prostate cancer doesn't develop solely because someone is having sex with someone right. receptive. Right. But, but I am saying that we can't overlook the fact that we have the theoretical constructs in Chinese medicine to understand why would prostate cancer develop if one didn't have the ideal sexual life and what can be done about it? And that if nothing is done about it, then there really is no reason that even with 
treatment by an oncologist that a patient will ultimately eliminate all symptoms for the rest of their lives because they're right. continuing to engage in behavior that's cultivating that kind of stagnation and congestion. Yeah. Well, um, with that, I know that you're gonna be presenting at our upcoming Pacific Symposium coming up in the fall. And I'm really excited for that. I always learn so much, uh, whether it's a conversation with you or whether it's a workshop with you or just a one hour uh, morning session at the symposium. You're such a deep well of information and knowledge and wisdom. So um, I know you're still formulating your thoughts, but hopefully, um, what do you think? We're, what do you think? And I don't want to pin you down on your subject yet because you have plenty of time. But what do you think we need as a as a profession? What do we need to hear from you during that? I think symposium? we all need to understand the power of human sexuality, and that we can't segregate it from Chinese medicine. Yes. And I also think that there is a unique sacredness to the role of the female and the role of the male. Yeah. And in our culture, we tend to bash and belittle sexuality in general. Uh, but on the other hand, we need to have an understanding as to what its magnificence is and the role that a man is supposed to play when he brings his sexuality into the world and into his partnership and the role that a woman can play by doing that fully. Uh, and without bridal, so to speak. So unfortunately, I, I'm not comfortable with our respect level for human sexuality as a whole. Mm -hmm. I think men bashing is a pretty comfortable thing in, in certainly in media. Yeah. Um, I think sexualizing women very superficially is a comfortable thing in our mm -hmm. media. Mm -hmm. And if we keep using sex for purposes that are not sacred and that are not healing oriented, we're not gonna serve our health. And I do know that what our clinicians need to know about is how can our patients serve themselves by honoring their sexuality and what do patients need to know about their sexuality so they can feel really good about who they are. And that that sense of pride and joy can become part of their overall health building process with clinicians. So I love that. those are some big thoughts on it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I'll, I'll be there for sure in that, uh, Thank you. In that session. Yeah. Well, Felice, it's always a pleasure and a joy to, to be with you in any sense, whether it's teaching or, to, or you know, in conversation or on this podcast. So uh, from all of us at the Pacific Center for Lifelong Learning and, and the podcast crew and, and Pacific College of Health and Science, you're a, you're a, dear, a dear friend, an old friend, and uh, we love you very much. So thank you so much. That's lovely, Greg. Thank you. And to all of our viewers, you in your body right now, even if you're not aware of it, even if you have criticized or condemned it, you have a jewel inside of you that our professional ancestors acknowledged and learned how to cultivate. And I hope you choose to cultivate in yourself the awareness of all that is sacred within your sexuality and the sexuality of your patients.